0: Dog on a leash. He brings the dog on the leash to a storefront and ties the dog's leash to the fencing around the storefront. And then he goes into the store and says to one of the employees, Hey, a dog has been abandoned. And then he leaves and walks down the sidewalk without the dog. Looks over his shoulder, and that's it. Now, the comment section on this particular video blew up, but two very different perspectives. One side was really slamming the guy, saying, he's just clearly cruel and heartless. How can anyone do this to this dog? The other side is saying, didn't you see him look back? Isn't it possible that it's not so much heartlessness but hardship that he is experiencing and he's just simply trying to do the best that he can to do right by this dog. Don't know. I don't know. This much everyone agreed on. They felt bad for the animal. They felt bad for the dog. It does have a happy ending. It was It's you know, the way those, most of those videos go, right? Um, but it got me to you know, thinking that you know, the, the degree to which videos like this and, and that one in particular just pulls on the, the heartstrings of, of us humans who watch these things and, and just feel something is resonating. Just it's, it's this string that's just plucked within our hearts, and, it's, and it hit me this past week. I think I know why. I think it's because we identify in some visceral way with the animal. We know something of what it is to be lost, to be left behind, to be cut off, to be abandoned. And so there's this visceral gut sense that goes out towards that creature because we feel that in some way. So here's the the good news we have this morning. Whatever your experience has been in life, however others have treated you in that way, Jesus never will. He never abandons, leaves behind his own. In fact, his love for his own is so intense and so real, he wants us to know that love. You see that? You see, it goes to another level. It's not just that he loves us, but he wants us to know that, and he is intent on communicating that. That we might know it. That our lives, that our hearts might be changed, impacted, transformed by this love. Which then, believe it or not, takes us to the book of Leviticus. And I'm being serious. Because that's what the book of Leviticus is about. It's just about Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to go with me to Leviticus 3. We're now in the, I guess, third installment. Right? Yeah, third installment in this series. Um... And we're going to be reading the whole of the chapter, Leviticus 3, verses 1 through 17. Some of your translations might say peace offering. Some may say fellowship offering. Either one's fine. The word can be translated either way. Uh, Both are speaking, in essence, to what we're talking about here. Uh, Leviticus chapter 3, if you're trying to find that in your Bible, it's going to be on the screen uh, behind me. But if you're trying to, to find it, Genesis, Exodus, boom, Leviticus. So pretty easy. Leviticus 3, verses 1 through 17, hear now God's word. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his, food, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a blam for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Well, can we stop? Can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for your work in your people those many years ago in that setting, and we would want to understand something of that now, not just... Uh, to satisfy curiosity about what, to our Western sensibilities, seem like some pretty bizarre stuff. Um, and uh, part of us, our hearts, just has to confess we are so glad that we don't have to read this so often, and we are so glad that we don't have to do this at all. But um, And that may be true, but we also have much to learn, and we, we do want to learn. And where we don't, we ask you to change, we ask you'd change even that, and we ask that you would stir within our hearts and minds and change us, change us, help us to be the men and women that you have created and called us out to be, and we ask this in your name, Jesus, amen. So in a dating relationship, at some point along the way, each person, the guy and the gal, is going to be asking this question. Um, When are they going to say, I love you? When are they going to say that I love you? Interesting studies have been done on this, the differences between men and women, uh, when it comes to that sort of moment in that dating relationship. Men, on average, take 88 days to say, I love you in a dating relationship. Women, however, Women, however, take on average 134. I have no idea why that is, and that's not the message, Um, but it's an interesting statistic. Um, But moving from when, uh, when will they say I love you to another question related but a little different, and that is when should we say I love you? When should we say, I love you? Now, counselors, uh, relational counselors, marital counselors and such, uh, there's a variety of opinion on on that, but but there's great agreement on this score. It should never be a one and done kind of thing. It's not just something that you say once, it's like, well, I told you, like, you know, I I told you. No, it's not to be a one and done sort of thing. This is a message of, um, an important message that bears repeating, I love you. Okay, so that actually has a lot to do with Leviticus uh, and where we're going here this morning. That's how God deals with us in the sense of the frequency and the variety of ways that he is intent on telling us, showing us that he loves his people. So, let me remind you where we are. So, Leviticus, in order to understand the book of Leviticus, you've got to know something of the book of Exodus and the historical context and the flow of events. So, with the book of Exodus, just summing it up, the Lord, in His grace, brings His people out of Egypt, Okay, out of redeems them out of slavery and bondage for 400 years there in Egypt, and in the course of doing so, as they're he's moving them out uh, through going out east towards Canaan, uh, he stops them at Mount, takes them to Mount Sinai, uh, stops them at Mount Sinai, and gives them the Ten Commandments. The idea being this: his intent there is to communicate to them, to us, this is how you are to live in response to my love. The law, the Ten Commandments. Um, then in addition to that, in Exodus, we read the of regulations and stipulations and plans regarding the tabernacle, because the Lord in his grace and his love for his people is intent on living among them, living in their midst. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. And now we get to, last week we, look, we were looking at the burnt offering, this week we were looking at something called the peace or fellowship offering, and it would seem that in giving his people, this particular offering, this particular sacrifice to make, he is saying, as I am dwelling in your midst, I want to stay connected to you. I want you to know me. I want to be close to you and you to me, not just living in your midst, formally, but really in, in a dwelling in your midst. And hence, again, the peace offering. Hence, again, what you call the, the fellowship offering. The, put it this way. The Lord has established, this is what we see here in this offering, in this sacrifice, and, and the, the rules surrounding it. We'll get into that in a minute. The Lord has established fellowship, or you could say peace, whichever one, The Lord has established fellowship with his people. Now, that's a statement worth considering in and of itself. The Lord has established fellowship with his people. He wants us to know that and to live out of that. That's what this whole text is about. Leviticus 3. The Lord in His grace has established fellowship with His people and He wants us to know that and He wants us to live out of that. And we see that in three ways. If you printed out the outline, if you, if you saw it there on the Facebook page and put, brought the bulletin with you, you can see. There's three parts to this, or at least in terms of where we're going. Three parts. The first is, uh, you, you can see the, 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 this, the aspect of how He has established fellowship with us in how this whole thing begins in blood. That's the first thing we'll talk about. The second thing is we'll look at the burning of the fat. That comes up repeatedly in this offering. And the third thing is the way this was meant to bond the people together. So, yeah, there's a little alliteration going on there with the Bs, right? So you've got the, it begins in blood, the burning of the fat, and the bonding of the people. Okay? Let's look at the first thing, how this whole thing begins in blood. Blood. Verses 1 and 2. If his offering is a sacrifice, a peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. All right, we'll stop there. Um, What a scene, right? These are bowls catching the blood as the animal's throat has been slit, and the bowls are catching that blood. And the priests are there throwing this blood, volumes of blood, up against the sides of the altar. We're worried about spilling coffee in the sanctuary, right? Um, You know, crumbs from a donut, you know, on the floor. Uh, This is a visceral, messy physical sort of thing, to say the least. There's repeated uh, symbolism going on here. And I say repeated because you may remember that we've already seen something of like this before with the burnt offering. It's nearly identical. It's nearly identical what we've seen thus far of what we were looking at uh, last week. With, again, with the, the blood, all this blood on the altar, the priests are involved with this, uh, the, the, the worshiper is the one who kills the animal, who identifies with the animal, and the priests sin because they're the ones who do the wor- any work that's tied to the altar. They're the ones that are taking the blood and putting it upon the altar. So much is, is alike what, what we saw last week with the burnt offering. Relatively no change, but then something does change as we move through this, and well, that's the second point it has to do with the fat, but we have this repeated symbolism What's that about? Why do it again with this? Well, it seems to be the idea is it's meant to serve as a continual reminder. A continual reminder of our need of atonement. Tied to, yes, even the peace or the fellowship offering. There is still yet this need for atonement. We need to be ransomed and cleansed from the guilt and defilement of our sins. And that has to take precedent. That has to, to be symbolized, has to be communicated, has to be understood before you can even talk about fellowship, relationship with the Lord. So this this rite, this sacrifice, this offering is communicating from the very start, is a reiteration of this point that this relationship begins in blood. This relationship between God and his people begins in blood. And the idea is it seems to be that the Lord is saying to his people then and now, you must not lose sight of that. You must never lose sight of that. That this relationship between me and you begins in blood. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of obnoxious. It's not meant to shame the people. It's meant to assure them it's meant to assure us. It's not meant to shame us to say, this relationship begins in blood. It's meant to assure us that it begins in blood. Let me take you to another text in Leviticus. Leviticus 17, verse 11. It's a critical passage in the whole book. Leviticus 17, verse 11. I apologize, I didn't get it on the screen for you. Uh, this is how the, the, the text reads in the ESV. 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood... And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Now let me take you back to the earlier part of the verse where it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. A more literal translation would read, for I, I myself have given it to you. There is a stress there. There's a reiteration there. I, I myself have have given this to you, the idea being this is His provision, this whole thing, this whole means by which atonement can take place, the whole idea behind it is God's provision, it is His merciful doing, it is His gracious initiative, put it this way, how can this be not shaming, how can this be assuring, this is communicating yet again that our standing before God is forever secure, not by our performance, but by his provision. And that's the only basis by which it can be eternally secure because he's the one, he's the one that's initiating this and providing this and doing all of this. And so again, he is establishing fellowship with his people He's the one doing that, and he wants us to know that and to live out of that, which then takes us to the second point. Uh, So we see this whole thing begins in blood, but what's with the burning of the fat? What what is that? Uh, That's verses 3 through 5. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver. He shall remove with the kidneys, and Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, that is, the, it is the fat, which is on the wood, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What on earth is going on here? What does this mean? We've got to get back to what I'll call an ancient perspective. An ancient perspective on what's going on here is in particular, fat. Fat, from an ancient perspective, is not something that is to be avoided. That's how we think of it, mostly today, right, in terms of diet. Too much fat, too much fat, cut out the fat, check the ingredients. Okay, you know, throw that out. No, in the ancient world, To say too much fat is an oxymoron. Fat was the most, the fat of the meat was the most prized portion. Fat symbolized abundance. That's why you read phrases in in Genesis, in Exodus, referring to the fat of the wheat, meaning the best part, the fat of the land, meaning the place where crops will grow. The fat of the meat that's being sacrificed, in this case in the offering, is the best. It's the choicest part, the most valued part of all, you see? So that's the perspective. So then what's the deeper meaning here? It's being given over to the Lord. The best part, the most valued part, the most treasured part is being given over before anything else is done is being given over to the Lord, placed upon the the altar, burned, all of it, none of it held back, all of the fat, placed upon that which is most valuable, Most uh, why? To communicate honor. He is the one. He is the one. Not the worshiper. The one who is worshipped is worthy of the greatest honor and praise. So he is do our very best. So in that culture... In that culture, that's a concrete expression of that conviction, that the Lord is worthy of our all, of our very best. So, we see this begins in blood, we see then the fat is burned, why? Because he is deemed to be most worthy. Put another way, I'm coming from now, seeing it from the negative side, he is worth more than our leftovers. Now what would that mean for us? In our cultural context, what would it mean for you and I to burn the fat in this way? What would it mean for you and I in our cultural context, in our relationship with the true and living God, what would it mean for you and I to burn the fat? Well, you are here on the first day of the week, so that's a start, right? That's a start. That's an expression of that. Okay. What about our finances? What's the criteria by which you decide how much to give? What's left over? What about our energy? What about our time? What about uh, the way our planners look over the, with a week? What would that look like in the allocation of our very selves? What would that look like in a concrete way to burn the fat, to give the Lord our best because that's what He's worthy of. That's what He's due. What would that mean? Again, He has established fellowship with his people, and he longs for us to know that and to live out of that. Well, that then takes us to the third thing. Uh, of course, we, again, we see this, this whole thing begins in blood, and then there's the, the burning of the fat, and then there's this bonding of the people. And this points us to a highly relational element here that ties right into what we're going to be doing in just a few minutes with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Right into it. Uh, directly, actually. So this is a shared meal. That's worth noting here. You can't see it in what I read earlier, but there's other chapters in Leviticus that talk about the, some of the regulations, and you, you can read that later. Um, but this is, it's clear that this is meant to be understood as a shared meal. It's described as what? As a food offering. And you see that three, at least three times here in the text. Uh, for instance, in verse 5, uh, it's the latter part of verse 5, it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Verse 11, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Verse 14, and he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord. So in every expression, whether it be uh, a, uh, an offering from the herd or the flock or a goat, in every case it's un- be understood as a food offering. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not some pagan offering being given to a hungry God. And we just need to feed him because God's hungry. That's not what this is about. Now, that was actually the understanding in some pagan cultures of the time, okay? But that's not in any way what we're seeing here with Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, okay? The God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, in this, this, it's symbolic, it's symbolic. And the idea here is between, this is a shared meal between parties. Who are the parties, you ask? Between the Lord and his people, A shared meal between the Lord and his people is what's being symbolized here. And actually going a little step further, not just between the Lord and his people, but between his people. This shared covenantal meal. It's a shared meal, this is the next subpoint in a covenantal setting. You see some things like this, if you go back and read in the book of Genesis, uh, in a meal that is shared between Isaac and a guy by the name of Avimelech. In Genesis 26, you see very much the same thing. The fellowship, the peace offering. Go back, Genesis 26. You can read it this afternoon. Or between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban, in Genesis 31. You see something very much like what we're reading of here in, in Leviticus. The peace offering, the fellowship offering. And then what's really interesting is what you see in Exodus 24. Exodus 24 Uh, it's a real head-scratcher, but it is really something to to look at. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Now, where they're going up is up Mount Sinai, and already in, in chapter 24, it's been said that you're gonna have, you're gonna present a peace offering. Okay? All right, so... these guys, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders of Israel, went up, verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, meaning he didn't kill them. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is a shared meal between God and His people. This fellowship meal, this peace offering that's taking place here. And that's what we see going on here in in Leviticus. Among other things, you may know that in the ancient world, such meals were intended to be understood as an expression of hospitality. Hospitality. At the very least, and that's still the case today when you go over to that part of the world, that it is is a valued, treasured thing to be able to uh, share and to serve the very best that you have from your larders to your guest. That's the way you, I mean, hospitality is a premium virtue. That's the way you do that. And that's at least partly what's going on in this offering, in this sacrifice, but it is more than that. It is not just an expression of hospitality. It is the confirmation of a covenantal bond. It is the confirmation of a covenantal bond. These meals would be shared between parties to seal a covenant, much like we would sign a, a document or in years past in Western culture, shake the hand, you know, when that meant something. And that's what you have when you'd sit down at a meal together. It was to confirm, to confirm the covenant. To confirm the promises that have been made. And that's what we see going on here with this peace offering, with this fellowship offering. It is a time to remember. It is a time for these promises to be reaffirmed and for the the parties of the covenant to rededicate themselves to what it is that they have said that they will do. And so this fellowship offering, this peace offering, again, is meant to be understood as a bonding, a bonding of the people between them and God, and God and them. Very much like the Lord's Supper. Very much like the Lord's Supper. And in fact, if you go and read the gospel accounts, and the words that we have passed down recorded that Jesus spoke in the institution of the Supper you see a lot of parallels. In fact, it seems that he just simply understands this in the context of, yes, the Passover, but the Passover was understood to be a peace offering, a fellowship meal offering. And so that's incredibly instructive for us as we think about what we're about to be doing here in the next few minutes. Have you ever thought about what you're supposed to be thinking about during the Lord's Supper? Have you ever thought about what you're supposed to be thinking about during the Lord's Supper? Well, here are some cues. The power of God, the presence of God, the promises of God. His covenant that we would remember, that we would reflect as he is reaffirming that promise to us in this moment, as he is reaffirming his promises to us in this moment as we partake of this covenantal meal with him. And we rededicate ourselves in response, in love to him. Something we, of course, then need to be doing with regularity and doing corporately and doing joyfully. Because he has established fellowship with the likes of us. And he wants us to know that. Let me me end with this. So the statement, I love you. Start off by talking about the the frequency issues uh, with with that. Not not just when it should be said, but how often it should be said. Uh, Perhaps we should also come and and touch on the, the ways and variety in which that can be expressed as well. So, with my wife, Sarah, who's traveling, she's not here today, um, I want her to know I love her. With all the imperfections of my love, nonetheless, I do want her to know that I do love her. And so I tell her frequently, but I also need to show her frequently. So I will say that I love you, but I will also hold her hand or put my arm around her or hug her or kiss her. Why? Because I want this woman to know that I love her and I am willing to go to lengths to express that. Now imagine how strange it would be, how bizarre it would be, if all I did was tell her and never touch her to show her. Right? That would be kind of strange. But conversely, it would also be kind of strange if all I did was touch her and never tell her. I mean, that would be kind of strange as, as, as well. Well, I need to be doing both, and, and in a way, that's what the Lord is doing for us. Telling and showing. Telling and showing, and there's ancient roots with this, going all the way back to these covenantal meals between God and his people. And it's what we have here with the supper. Because, friends, we are not heads on a stick. It's just not enough to be told. And it's not just about learning styles. We are embodied souls. And so we, have, we must be told and told and told and told and shown and shown and shown and shown. And so we have this sacrament we have this sacrament where it is the gospel not just spoken, but portrayed for us. And he, such is his determination, such is his longing that we might know that he has given this to us. Can I just pause to pray before we move towards the supper? Uh, let's pray for a moment. Lord, we ask that you would help us to reflect on these things, even as we are partaking of the supper here together. Uh, we ask that you would... Um, wrestle with questions such as, how do I need to hear this? How do I need to hear this morning that the living God loves me? How do I need to hear that? Would you help us to consider the question, what what would change? What would change in my life today if I was to believe that? That the true and living God actually loves me. We thank you for Leviticus 3. We thank you for this offering, this sacrifice that you gave to your people and what you were trying to convey to them and to us through it. We ask that you would work in our hearts even now as we are about to partake of the bread and the cup. Would you reassure us of your love? We pray these things in your name. Amen. If I may ask uh, the other elders who are helping out here this morning with the supper to come on forward. Um, Let me kind of set the stage, if I may. Uh, Again, as we've been talking about, the Lord's Supper, obviously being established on the night before Jesus was betrayed, 33 A.D., is an ancient practice. But the principles, and this is what we've been getting at the last few minutes, the principles involved there went back even further. The roots were even deeper. Uh, and uh, I can only imagine uh, what these, those Jewish men were thinking as they were hearing Jesus describe what he was doing in the way that he, he was uh, in, that, in that moment. It's a covenantal meal, which means over the next few minutes, I would implore you to remember... To remember. To ask the Lord in His grace who is present with us in the the sacrament to reaffirm to your heart His promise. His promise. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone we are secure forever in in standing. And then with that, with that remembering and that reaffirming, may then may then from that soil come the fruit of rededicated lives, okay? Now, this is, a, as is oftentimes said, a gift of God for the people of God. How should the people of God receive such a gift? The Apostle Paul touches on that in 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read to you these words. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So obviously, if you just hear what Paul's saying here, to partake of the bread and the cup, to partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, presupposes a relationship with Jesus. It assumes in our language today that you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus if you're participating in the supper. So if you're, if you're here this morning and that's not where you are in your life's journey, then I would implore you not to take of the bread and the cup this time. Perhaps next time you'll be at a place where that will be appropriate. And Paul is also clearly saying that not only does this presuppose a relationship between you and Jesus, it also requires some reflection on our part. He speaks of of discerning the body, meaning understanding that you are part of a larger body, the the body of Christ, and to discern, uh, is there conflict? Have you done all that's incumbent upon you in your relationship with one with another? And is, stemming from that, tied to that, is there some area of rebellion in your life where you know yourself to be Consciously stiff-arming your king, in essence. Saying, no, I'm not doing that. Um, some area of rebellion and disobedience. Again, the apostles' counsel's command to us would be to forego uh, communion this time. The Lord's intention for His people in this moment is in such context as to tell us, I love you. but also to show us in these signs and seals as we take it, as we hold it, as we taste it, as we smell it, as we take it in. This is the ultimate show and tell.